This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I'm Ruth Reeder, and you're listening to Fast Break, your weekly source of inspiration and motivation in these uncertain times. This week, we'll dive into a case in front of the Supreme Court concerning medication abortion. Then we'll revisit some moments from the Innovation Festival we didn't get to cover last week. This is your Fast Break. Over the summer, a district court ruled in favor of rolling back the restrictions around medication abortion, allowing it to be sent through the mail during the pandemic. One of the pills in the medication abortion cocktail has to be taken in clinic, creating an unnecessary roadblock for women who work or who live far from a clinic. Medication abortion has been shown to be extremely safe, even when taken at home, and women's health organizations have been fighting to have the restrictions rolled back for years. Despite that, the Trump administration appealed the decision, and a new ruling from the Supreme Court was expected in September. Then Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. Republicans have been pushing to fill her vacancy. Judiciary Committee hearings on nominee Judge Amy Coney Barrett are slated to begin today despite a recent coronavirus outbreak in the Senate. Critics of this decision are concerned about how Judge Barrett's conservative views could impact health care, especially abortion access. Here to discuss what the changing of the justices means for abortion care is Drexel University Professor of Law David S. Cohen. His research explores voting anomalies in the Supreme Court and how the law impacts abortion provision, including violence against abortion providers. Welcome to the show, Professor Cohen. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, okay, so let's talk about mifepristone and how there is so much data around it that shows that it's really safe. There have been studies showing that you can even mail it and taking the drug at home, both mifepristone and Mr. Miss, <laughs> I'm going to mispronounce it. Misoprostol. Uh, Misoprostol, thank you. Taking both of these drugs at home is safe. We know that we have data to back it up and yet the, the FDA has these REMS in place nonetheless. And there have been a lot of organizations and people who have tried to to get those rolled back. And so I'm also sort of curious about how that factors into this decision or if it factors in at all or if it's a completely separate legal decision because it has nothing to do with the pandemic. I think all of it has to do with what my co-author and I call abortion exceptionalism, that when you think of medical regulation, there's medical regulation that applies generally to all sorts of medical fields. And then there's abortion regulation. And legislatures throughout the country, including the federal government, treat abortion differently, even though it is a very safe procedure, safer than childbirth, safer than colonoscopy, safer than liposuction, safer than almost every other outpatient procedure. It's very common procedure. 800,000 to a million people every year get an abortion. It's common, it's safe, it's easy in most cases. A first trimester abortion, surgical abortion, it's not even an accurate term since there's no surgery, but a procedure takes less than five minutes. Medical abortion, you can do at home and safe. So it's a very safe, normal medical procedure, but it's regulated as if it's incredibly unsafe and dangerous, which it's not, to reiterate because of the politics behind the issue and because anti-abortion people have captured federal agencies and captured several state legislatures. So you're right. I mean, the, the restrictions on medication abortion shouldn't be there. It's incredibly safe. You can mail the drug as long as someone has talked to a medical professional and make sure that there's no counterindication and that they're healthy and they know what to do. You know, obviously there's always some ex adverse reaction where someone has something bad happen. That happens with Tylenol. It's much safer than Tylenol. But for most people, it's like a heavy period. 
and people can handle that at home, right? So it should be available more broadly, but because of abortion politics, it isn't. I also wonder whether you think this case, if and when the Supreme Court rules on it, is sort of like a precursor or like a a decision that could indicate how the court may rule down the road on a possible Roe v. Wade overturning. Yeah, I mean, this case, because it's been sitting so long, is now before the court without Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, So even if Judge Barrett does not become Justice Barrett, while this case is before the Supreme Court, you have five conservatives and three liberals. And the five conservatives include Chief Justice Roberts, who voted to strike down a Louisiana abortion regulation over the summer. So he's not as hostile to abortion rights as everyone else, but he still is hostile to abortion rights. So what they do here could be a signal of what they are going to do with a court that is going to be even more lopsided around abortion. I don't know if you can read the tea leaves and say it will signal what they'll do about the ultimate question of Roe, because there's so much wrapped up in that, not just hostility to abortion, but the politics of the issue, overturning a 50-year-old precedent, overturning something that's not, you know, it's a popular decision with the people. So there is a lot wrapped up in overturning Roe, but this could be just a, 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 a signal on what the court might do in the future, or at least what kind of road it's going to walk. The other thing I kind of want to know your opinion on is just, I feel like all of these, you know, so much about abortion and women's sexual reproductive health has rested on the Supreme Court, now including this REMS decision, which is really just a stand-in for regulation. And I do kind of wonder if sort of the pressure that's building around both Mithapristone and the availability of it, and then also, you know, now these current concerns around Roe v. Wade, will that push legislators to actually create comprehensive legislation around, you know, women's reproductive health and and what should be, you know, accessible and made accessible? I mean, so, you know, when you talk about the threats to reproductive health coming from the Supreme Court, the optimist looks at, well, if the Supreme Court's going to be horrible, maybe that will push the politicians or at least the people to push the politicians to make better laws. And so that is a hope. And the essence of that is getting people to vote and to push their politicians and not just for the president, but also every down ballot, because most abortion decisions are made at the local level. So you need to be voting for your local politicians and your state politicians because they make abortion policy. But yes, the hope is that if things look dire enough, and even if they don't, we should be pushing them for what you said, for comprehensive reproductive health access and justice that includes contraception, includes sex ed, it includes abortion access, it includes maternity care and prenatal care. All of those things should be wrapped in and part of affirmative legislation guaranteeing access and justice. And there, you know, if Joe Biden wins and the Democrats take over the Senate and the House, they've talked about passing laws that do that. And it's up to people who care about those issues to hold them to that if they do win. Because if they win and just give it lip service, it doesn't help. We need to put pressure on people. So activism at the local, state, and national level on these issues is essential. Because you're right, we can't rely on the Supreme Court anymore. We need to rely on the legislatures and push them. And we've seen things like that happen. Maine last year had a change in their legislature, change in their governor, and they enacted two laws that really transform abortion access in the state, covering abortion under Medicaid and allowing nurse practitioners and other advanced practice clinicians to provide abortion. That improves access. And that came through the ballot box and politics and not the courts. 
you know, in absence of that, in absence of legislation, another thing that seems to be cropping up because medication abortion is a thing that you can buy and there is safety data, there has also been sort of this movement, for lack of a better word, to just get medication abortion online and do it yourself. And I wonder sort of what what that reality looks like legally. So legally, it really depends on local prosecutors, right? Local prosecutors could go after someone for self-managed abortion by getting pills online that are not part of a proper pharmacy and not dispensed according to the FDA regulations. And we have seen prosecutors go after people who've done that in bulk and then people who've done that in a way that raises the prosecutor's attention. But you're right that the availability has increased. The internet, we can get anything we want on the internet, right? You know, people have done studies. The safety of pills available on the internet is usually very high and that you are getting what you buy. But of course, everyone needs to have the caution that you don't know exactly what you're going to get. But yeah, I think as we see abortion restricted more, we see more people resorting to things like that. And that's that's one of the good things about the modern world as opposed to the pre-Roe world. Pre-Roe, people resorted to back alley abortions, coat hangers, bleach, and other things that were really dangerous. People might do that again, but I think we're going to see more people who use medication abortion or, and buy pills online, which is much safer. We're not going to see people dying and getting as sick as they did before Roe in the same numbers. We'll probably see some, which will be disastrous and horrible, but I think because of modern technology, it will be a different situation. The risk will be people who put themselves at risk of being prosecuted. And we know who gets prosecuted more, people of color, poor people, rural people who run the risk of the criminal justice system going after them. Well, thank you so much for joining me. That was very insightful and I really appreciate your thoughts on this issue. Thanks for covering this issue and thanks for talking to me about it. In the hours after David and I recorded our interview, the Supreme Court issued a ruling on the restrictions around Mifepristone and whether or not they should be reinstated. So I called David back, and the following is an update on that conversation. So given this turn of events, given that they have have issued their, their ruling and it looks like they're extending the rollback, what are your thoughts? So, I mean, on the one hand, this is good. It means that the restrictions on medication abortion are on hold for a longer period of time. So that means clinics are able to mail medication to patients for at least another probably month or two. And that's good. That means for those patients, it will be easier to get an abortion. What the court basically said is that the government has to ask the lower court, the trial court, to develop the record more, get more facts before the court, because the Supreme Court didn't think it had enough facts to make a decision. So it's up to the trial court to develop the record more, get more facts. Both sides will be able to do that. And then the Supreme Court said the district court, the trial court, has to rule within 40 days. So it's going to be a quick turnaround for the trial court, could go right back to the Supreme Court, So we could be right back where we were, waiting for the Supreme Court to rule in a couple months, but it does extend this ruling for a couple months at least, um, and that's a good thing. The bad thing is that probably within a couple months, Amy Coney Barrett's going to be on the Supreme Court, so she will be a part of the decision-making. It will make it an even more hostile Supreme Court, which could be really dangerous, but for the time being, it's it's a win. 
Let me ask you one follow-up, and I think we touched on this yesterday, but just given the the change in events, because they're asking for more information and more evidence, I am curious what role the data plays here in terms of the safety of it, or does it not? Does is this just a matter of sort of like really nuanced legalities? The court did not specify what information it needed. So it would have been nice, right, if it had said the court doesn't think it has enough information, here's what's missing. It didn't do that. So I think the both sides are going to have to guess what the court wants. It might be more studies about safety, although I'm sure that information is in there. It might be more information about where we are with the pandemic now, so how risky contact is now. Um, it might be about how clinics have been delivering services during the pandemic. They w- might want more information about that. But it's not clear. And so the lawyers are going to have to figure that out in conjunction with the trial court judge and then hope that they've provided the Supreme Court with enough information. Any other thoughts on this decision? Or is it sort of, have, or have any of your positions changed from yesterday? I don't imagine that they have terribly. I think what this shows is that the Supreme Court just doesn't want to tackle this issue right now. Maybe it's because it's right before the election. Maybe it's because they're down one justice and looking for the court to change shortly. But for whatever reason, the court doesn't want to tackle this right now. But there's enough interest on the court to say maybe later. Uh, We just have to wait and see a couple months from now. Yeah. I mean, by then the election will be decided. So I can imagine that it will the politics of it changes. The election will have been decided. We will probably have a new justice on the Supreme Court. The pandemic may be the same, worse, or better. I mean, if everyone's prediction's correct that the fall and the winter are going to be worse, we could be in a much worse situation, and maybe that will help the plaintiffs, showing that we need have even more of a need to have touchless abortions. We'll see what facts are developed and what the world looks like in a couple months. Awesome. Well, that was great. Uh, I really appreciate you making a few minutes just to update this given, you know, the quick turnaround. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to do so. This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Podcasting is going to be a $1 billion industry next year, according to Business Insider Intelligence. This is largely because the audiences are growing and investment is pouring in. Last week at the Innovation Festival, Fast Company senior writer Nicole Laporte sat down with Spotify's chief content officer, Dawn Ostriff, to discuss how she's working on cultivating younger audiences and developing new content. They were joined by Addison Ray, co-host of Mama Knows Best podcast, as well as Ricky Thompson and Denzel Dion, who host the We Said What We Said podcast together. Nicole started by asking Dawn how Spotify is focused on expanding its millennial and Gen Z audiences. Yeah. You know, look, I, I, I helped launch the CW Network, and I've been programming to a younger generation for many, many years. And it's hard to capture the attention of this youth generation, of any youth generation, but particularly this youth generation. And the reason being they have so many choices in terms of their different forms of entertainment. Everything is on demand so they can get everything anytime they want. And being able to stand out in that crowd and and have an audience and have people want to either see or hear any particular person is just 
you know, a, a Herculean task these days. There's just so much noise out there. So, you know, it's getting harder and harder to really get the attention of the youth generation. And Spotify has clearly done so. I mean, our median age listener for podcasting is 26 years old. So, you know, you can see how having podcasting on our platform really fits where our, where our audience is and we're able to also attract new people onto the platform with talent like Addison and Ricky and Denzel. They're really helping us even bring on a larger audience. Addison has over 63 million followers on TikTok, which for context is three times as many people who tuned in to watch the Oscars this year. So Nicole was curious how Addison was able to transform content from TikTok into a podcast format. Um, I think for me, it's been really, really fun and exciting. And like, luckily I can kind of like handle a good change. But I do think that there is an obvious difference between short form content and long form content, regardless of like the audio or video of it. It definitely was something I had to get used to kind of like continuing to carry on a conversation for more than 15 seconds at a time and like doing, you know, a long 30 minute podcast has been like a very big difference. But I think luckily like the connection my mom and I have and like the relationship we were able to build can kind of like guide that and like let us let go in a way. Because I think because of short form content now, which like so many people watch, um, you'll find a YouTube video for six minutes and be like, oh, this is the best thing ever. But you know, there's not very much now that you can listen to for such long of a time. And I think podcasts are the perfect way to kind of like meet in the middle of like, oh, I'm not watching like an hour and a half long movie, but like I'm not watching a short YouTube video. Now I'm, you know, really listening to more detail than, than a video, but now it's like really accessible and easy. And I think a relationship of two people is like the perfect way to, to get people hooked in and listen. Ricky and Denzel recently launched their podcast show and Nicole wanted to know what it was like jumping into a new medium. How did they reframe what they usually do on Instagram and YouTube to something for a podcast? For us, I feel like you do all these extra comedic stuff on Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube. But when it came to the po- when, when it came to the podcast, um, we just stripped down and really talked what we wanted to talk. But we find out that that's what people wanted from us. So like we would make a YouTube video, we would just sit down, we just talk, like no dancing, no getting up, not trying to make people laugh, but just have a genuine like heart to heart, front to front conversation. People like, you guys, you guys need the podcast. Like I can hear this all day. So I feel like when we did the podcast, it was like, okay, this is where we belong. This is how we feel. And we just gonna let it out. Don't hold back. Sometimes we're like, no, this is too much. See, but if it was video, it would be like too much. But since it's audio, we're like, let's just say it. Like, let's just, whatever. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people are going to really enjoy this podcast because for me personally, I feel like it's very therapeutic for me. Like I always look at Denzel like my therapist. So <laughs> I'm like, you know, I'm so happy that I have like that best friend that I can actually come to and really talk to. And I feel like um, in this podcast, I feel a lot of people were going through what we went through as well. So I feel like people are going to listen in and be like, oh my gosh, wow. I'm going through that as well. So it's a good thing. So we're like those best friends that you guys need. So. Yeah. And then also when we're talking, giving advice and just talking about whatever topic we're talking about, because we talk about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Get, <laughs> sometimes it's just things that we've said between us to nobody else. So when we say it out for the first time, it's like, whoa, we're like, okay, we just like, this is, we just said this. Like, are we like, you know, and it's just kind of so real. Like every time we feel, we get so happy. We're like, okay, well, Let's go in. Mm-hmm. And we just strip down. Yeah, it's kind of like therapy. It is, it's honestly. Therapy. <laughs> it's it's kind of like therapy. It's like, woof, okay. 
Okay, now let's go. Who's that? Yeah, so, after every recording, I feel so much better. That's right. We just so, feel so much lighter and so happy, and we just go about it. Oh my god, that podcast would be so great. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. So, it, yeah, it's just everything for us. Yes. <laughs> to wrap up the panel, Nicole asked Dawn what she sees for the future of creating podcast content. So, you know, my roots are in creative, even though I, I now obviously do do a lot more. But that's really where I started was on the creative side of the business. And so I always have an affinity to kind of give an opinion or to help really talk about different trends that we're seeing. And I think it's really important to track trends. But also because I've been involved in the early days of cable when cable was getting more sophisticated and doing, you know, really premium content. And then I was involved when digital video started to explode. I feel like when I'm watching what's happening in the podcast space, you can see that there are certain types of content that haven't really been explored to the same degree that some of the podcasts that we're talking about here have been. So scripted podcasts, although some have been quite popular and we have a show like Homecoming, which has already migrated onto television and become a TV series on Amazon. And there are many other types of of shows that are, are now going and becoming TV shows or movies. I think there's still a lot of room to do more scripted content there's room to do more comedy content, even reality type programming. So I think there's a lot of genres within the podcast space that just haven't really been explored in the same way. And so I'm always encouraging our team to look for those opportunities. And on a global basis, when we're seeing trends happen in one part of the world, we're always saying, okay, how can we adapt that trend and see if it works you know, elsewhere? And so Max Cutler is an example who oversees a company called Parcast, which we acquired, you know, they have so many different types of crime content and crime is resonating everywhere around the world. People are really obsessed with crime stories. So we're able to take that content and translate it. And of course, rewrite the content. So it really fits whatever the region is, whatever the country is, but you're able to really see how certain trends are just exploding and there are other trends that are starting to bubble up within the space. And so our job is to be able to tap into all of those types of trends. And because we have you know, a significant global platform, we're able to really look at the data and let the data help inform some of our decisions because we'll have our instincts as creative executives, but then having the data to back up a lot of what we think is happening is really the, the win-win. That's it for this week. Fast Break was produced by Avery Miles. Be sure to check in with us next week for another roundup of helpful tips and creative ideas to stay positive throughout this challenging time. You can subscribe to Fast Break on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you like the show, please leave us a rating or a review. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ruth Reader.